If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is hour number two of the World According to Zig podcast for this February 17, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com where you can check out all the previous podcasts as well as check out our brand new podcast called Individual One. You can get a link there to Find out all the information about the Individual One uh, podcast, which is distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. Uh, That is off to a great start, and that is focused almost entirely on news involving Donald Trump, uh, President of the United States, of course. Uh, In hour number two, generally we have our guest on the World According to Zig podcast, and and this week uh, our guest was able to be used for both the Individual One podcast as well as World According to Zig. Uh, He is very familiar to fans of the World According to Zig podcast. He is Democratic Congressman John Yarmouth from Louisville, Kentucky, a very good old friend of mine. He and I hosted a television show together in Louisville on the NBC affiliate. We're golfing buddies. Uh, good friends from way, way back. Uh, He uh, obviously is a liberal. I am a conservative, uh, but we have a a very good relationship. And uh, while he's incredibly busy now because he's the chairman of the budget committee, uh, he uh, was able to make a little bit of time for us to talk about what's been going on both with the budget and the wall, as well as an update on impeachment and where things seem to be headed with regard to the 2020 elections. And so uh, John joins us now. Congressman John Yarmouth, chairman of the Budget Committee in the House. So good to talk to you. How are you, buddy? I'm doing fine, John. Thank you. I'm glad to be in the majority. (laughs) I'm sure (laughs) life is a little different these days, isn't it? Yeah. It's great to have the gavel. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, since since you mentioned that, so how has your life changed going from a minority member to the chairman of a a major committee? How does that change one's life? Well, first of all, I, I have a much bigger staff to deal with, um, so a lot more people I have to know and interact with, which is fine. But it, um, the, my circle of contacts, just on an everyday basis, has, has increased. And secondly, uh, people take what I say much more seriously now, <laughs> oh. <laughs> which is which is really dangerous, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> 
So are you someone who's not particularly good at sticking to talking points? That's you know. So so the problem. You're, you're not going to start becoming too careful now, are you, John? No, it's too, it's, I'm too old for that. Oh, good. Okay, I didn't want to make. I want to make sure we weren't going to lose my good friend John Yarmouth to uh, to the chairmanship of the budget committee and uh, all of a sudden having to be too super politically correct. But I get where you're coming from. Uh, all right, yeah. there's a lot of. But re- let me tell you. Let me say one more thing about being chairman. I have a gavel that is now the envy of Congress. There's gavel envy all over Washington because my gavel was made out of a Woodford Reserve bourbon barrel, and the hammer part of it is is designed to look like a bourbon barrel. So it it is totally cool. Wow. How did that – I know obviously you're from Louisville, people who don't know that, but and so they're the Woodford Reserve, by the way, my favorite bourbon. Uh, I I think think yours as well, if I can remember, although you're you're much more of a – yeah, well, it's one of, of course, i got to be political here. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> well, you're much more of a connoisseur uh, than I am, having, having lived in Louisville your whole life. But so how did that happen? How did, how did you get such a gavel? Actually, it was my staff thought it would be a great idea. They came up with it, and they uh, contacted uh, Brown Foreman, the company that owns um, Woodford Reserve and Old Forester and some other brands, and they uh, found an artist here who make, who does things, makes objects out of bourbon barrels. Wow. And he made it. Yeah. Very, very, very interesting. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, that's a great story. All right. So a lot of, a lot of reasons why I asked you to come on uh, at somewhat late notice. And I know you're real busy because you're not a chairman of the uh, budget committee and all. <laughs> um, uh, the, for, one of the reasons why I wanted to speak to you, John, today was because obviously this week the um, – the budget talks with regard to uh, the the wall and and making sure that the government doesn't shut down again uh, came to a head. The, the president did uh, finally uh, sign uh, the the agreement, but has declared that he's going to make a, a state of emergency in order to fund this wall that was not funded in the budget. You're the chairman of the budget committee. For context, give us a sense of uh, how big a role, and based upon the media reports, it was a very large role. How big a role did you personally play in these negotiations? Well, um, actually, the, the negotiations themselves I was not involved with. All of those people were appropriators. They were from the Appropriations Committee in the House and the Senate. Uh, but from a, um, an outside perspective, from the leadership perspective, I was involved in the discussions as to what, what we thought would be an acceptable um, re- resolution, what, what we could accept, what we couldn't. Uh, but I wasn't actually in the room. Again, those were all all appropriators. Right, but you you um you went to Camp David and spent a lot of time with the the chief of staff uh, of the White House, uh, uh, Mick Mulvaney, and mm-hmm. uh, and and that and, and, I'm, and you made a couple of statements I found fascinating. Knowing you like I do, uh, mm-hmm. you said, and this got a lot of play, that if Mick Mulvaney uh, was president and not chief of staff, that this all would have gotten done. Uh, far more easily and far more quickly. I, I think I'm I'm phrasing that correctly, or something close to yep. that. Uh, what did you mean by that? What what, what 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 does that really mean, John? Well, Mick, uh, regardless of of his philosophy, Mick is a very pragmatic guy. He understands the the, uh, the balance of power in the government. He understands Congress's role, and he understood the dynamics of now <clears throat> with Democrats being in the majority. Um, and that the, that the president wasn't going to get his way. I mean, he knew that, and um, so the president obviously doesn't know any of that. <laughs> so when we were in the room, and there were there were five Republicans and four Democrats, when we were discussing these things, it was obvious to me, both by what Nick said and what 
the discussion was we could have resolved the thing in, in just a matter of minutes. It wouldn't have been hard at all. It's, and, and that's true of a lot of things going on in Washington right now. You know, you, you, people say, what do you think is going to happen? And I preface it all with, by saying, well, in a rational world, this right. would happen. <laughs> right. But we're not in a rational world because we don't have a rational president. Right. And I agree with that. But, but can you give me a specific as to was it just fear of what Trump would do or that you couldn't take his word for, for in other words, his word is meaningless and therefore Mulvaney wasn't really speaking for the president because the president could change his mind on a dime. Was that, is that the big, exactly. That's it. Exactly. And you know, that actually happened on Thursday of last week when everyone was, was assuming that the president was going to sign whatever the conference committee came up with. And then he basically said Thursday morning he wasn't going to do it. And then Mitch had to get involved and and uh, come up with the deal that he came up with, which was you sign the, the legislation, and I will say that I support the national emergency declaration. Hmm. That all came down on Thursday after Trump on Thursday morning had said, I'm not doing this. Okay, so... Let, let's just for a little bit more context here, because I want to understand, uh, you know, from, from the perspective of, of, of a guy who told us he was this great negotiator and, you know, the author of uh, Art of the Deal. Uh, and, you know, I've never bought, bought into this notion that Donald Trump was a great negotiator. And to me, this whole wall issue is perfectly emblematic of that. Let, let's go back a little bit. Is it not accurate that back when you guys were in the minority, Trump could have effectively had his wall if he had really wanted it. Is that true? I think that is true. And as a matter of fact, there was a deal that, that involved $25 billion in border security money, not the $1.3 that uh, ultimately was in the deal. He could have had $25 billion in a deal that um, he would have had by getting a three-year um, moratorium on or extension basically on um, the dreamer situation allowing dreamers to stay in the country for three more years and he turned that deal down uh, and you know the republicans spin now the congressional republicans is well we didn't really have control of the, the senate because we only had uh, 51 votes but that was a deal they could have gotten democrat support for and the president turned that down. So, yes, he could have had it. Okay, so Trump could have had his, his wall, turned that deal down, and then he uh, loses the midterm election. And let's be clear, uh, could have come to a deal to keep the government running while Republicans still controlled the House in, in the lame duck session, right? But he decides not to do that, correct? <laughs> That's correct. Now, now, from a from a negotiating standpoint, did that shock you guys that he would he would knowingly and purposely decide, you know what, I'm going to wait until Democrats take over the House to finally make a deal on this? <laughs> Nothing shocks us anymore about President Trump. So, no, I mean we we. All right. Um, well, how how big were you smiling when I that? Think we, <laughs> well, none of us was smiling about shutting the government down right but i'm talking i'm talking about purely the negotiation part of this the leverage part of this oh well absolutely we were ecstatic because now you know like we knew the dynamics had changed even though the president didn't okay so so he turns down the deal that could have given him the wall he he decides even it's a last desperate ditch effort to bypass 
the lame duck session where his, his party still controls the House. He shuts down the government after the deal on the table was, uh, what, $1.6 billion for... $1.6 right. right. And and then after a, a month-long-plus shutdown, he, when we do the second go-around, he only gets about $1.3, $1.4, which is less than what he had before the shutdown, <laughs> correct? That's right. He made a hell of a deal. <laughs> now... John, on a scale of one to ten, you know, ten being total annihilation, custard's last stand, uh, um, and and one being, you know, he 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 won. Uh, how badly did the president get crushed in these wall negotiations? Oh, he was definitely sitting bull. All right, so he, it was a ten. No, oh, he he got crushed. Yeah, yeah he, absolutely. He, okay, so, and so it was, I'm sorry, I didn't I mis, misunderstood the scale. <laughs> but last night on Saturday Night Live, they had this great thing during the newscast of Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi trying to uh, not gloat. And it was, it was I think that was actually dead on point as, as to the way Democrats felt. All right. So you believe that you crushed the president in these wall negotiations, correct? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, and so- but, but, you know, there, there, there is a, a side of me that thinks that he may have wanted that because it enabled him to declare the national emergency. All right, we'll get to, to that. Do, to do something autocratically. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but I just want to okay. make, make sure that uh, I understand where we currently are. So okay. if, if you were somebody, I know this is a, a big stretch for you uh, as a liberal Democrat, but if, if you put yourself in the position of someone who is in Trump's base, who really wanted that wall and believed Trump when you know, he said it a thousand times during the 2016 election, he was going to build a wall, Mexico was going to pay for it. How how upset with him would you be, knowing what you know about how he handled these negotiations? Um, well, I probably would have to watch a lot of Fox News first to see what information <laughs> I was getting. Uh, but getting the information I have, if I were in in uh, in Trump's space, I would be furious. Yeah, because he he basically sold them out. And he may have done it. He may have done it. Let's go down the path you, you were paving there. He may have done it for, for his own, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, his own personal amusement, uh, because he uh, had in mind all along that he was going to declare this national emergency. And in retrospect, John, do you believe now during these negotiations that that was really his plan all along? I, I, think, he wanted, I think he wanted to do that, yes. Okay. And why do yeah. you think he wanted to do that? Because he loves to act unilaterally. He loves to act like an autocrat. That's, and then there's no doubt. I mean, he, he, he clearly doesn't understand Congress's role, nor does he respect Congress's role. And most of his base doesn't really respect Congress either. So this gives him the opportunity to say, Congress is pathetic. They didn't give me what I want. I'm, I'm doing what I want to do. Okay. Now, with regard to the, the uh, national emergency on, on the border to be able to pay for his wall. Um, where do you, where, I mean, obviously there's a lot of differing opinions on where this is going. I, I, I'm quite confident you know that or believe this to be illegitimate, but how do you see this ending up with it, this attempt? Well, if, um, if I am correct that he will not be president on January 20th, uh, 2021, then it'll all be moot because this entire process will not have run its course. The legal process, the lawsuits, the uh, eminent domain proceedings, all of those things 
will not have run their course by the time for over the for the next two years. So my guess is that none of this will actually make any difference in, in the final analysis. Well, that's a really important point you just made, and one that I've been making, and I'm about the only person I've seen on the right who is making it, which is that even if he wins and is allowed to do this. Uh, everything it's going to take, the, 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 uh, the endless court battles, as you mentioned, eminent domain, which conservatives used to be against, uh, you know, the logistical issues, and then the actual building of it, there's no chance, you agree, that there is zero scenario under the best of circumstances that any of this wall actually gets built before the 2020 election. Is that correct? Uh, absolutely. Okay. Now, absolutely. And I believe, John. I mean, know, they may go down and put some concertina wire of, of, on land that they uh, they already have, but that's about the extent of what will happen between now and then. Okay. And, and your premise is, and this is important, that if Trump loses in 2020, that means a Democrat is president, and and literally the first thing they do after taking the oath of office is they stop this process. Correct. Yes. All right. So so under that scenario, uh, essentially the the uh, election would be a referendum on a lot of things, but one of them would be on whether or not we're actually going to build this this wall, assuming he even gets through the courts. But I would go a step further, John. Mm. I, I would say that let's pretend Trump wins re-election, which I want to talk about shortly because I'm starting to worry that that's an actual possibility. And mm -hmm. so he wins re-election. I, I don't even think that logistically he can get this done in six years. What about that? What's your sense on that? I think there's a good chance you're right. Uh, these things tend to go on a long time. Now, you know, the, the, the challenge to his authority probably will be resolved relative, relatively quickly, uh, but that's not going to solve the other problems, which is getting the land, designing uh, all the logistics, you know, they have to go down and build roads to actually get to where they build the wall. It's, there's a whole infrastructure that, that accompanies actually constructing the wall. Right. So I think you're right. None of that will well, I mean, hearing, happen in 2024. And right. And so then, then the only scenario where, where any of this ever actually gets built is he wins in court, uh, goes through with it, wins re-election, and then somehow a Republican wins following him, which is a, I mean, look, we're living in a sh very strange world, but but that, sc that scenario is uh, in the uh, the realm of Jesse Smollett actually told the truth. Uh, uh, I mean, that, I mean that's, that's just not possible. And, and, and so the bottom line is we're never going to see this great wall. And, and here in California, I, I relate it very much to the high-speed rail situation, which which California just gave up on. I mean, these are logistical nightmares. These, they, they, there are, are numerous problems uh, uh, that maybe you don't even anticipate. And really, I'm not even sure Trump really, really cares that much about the actual wall, does he? he just, he's just embarrassed that he promised it so often, isn't he? Well, of course. And, and of course, the, the story has been well told now that the wall was basically just a, re a mem memory device for him to talk about immigration during the campaign. And it wasn't really a policy uh, uh, interest of his and, or anybody in his campaign. So exactly right. This is something, just like virtually everything else, it's all about his vanity and his pride. Boy, that's a really great way to do policy, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, that's what we've been living with for two uh, years. All right. Now, now, um, 
within this, I don't want to leave the, the budget talks without mentioning the fact that we now have a, a deficit of over $22 trillion, which, uh, you know, has been uh, increased dramatically under Republican president, Republican Senate and, and a Republican uh, Congress up until uh, you guys took over a couple months ago uh, or less than a couple months ago. I, I'm curious, John, and this, you mentioned we're no longer living in a rational world. Uh, and, and you, you, you know, you and I go way back and, and, and we love each other, but you are clearly a liberal Democrat. And yet I'm wondering, are you now as the chairman of the budget committee, the voice of fiscal reason in the, in the world we're now living in? Are you, are you in, 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 in terms of where we currently are, are you almost a deficit hawk in comparison <laughs> to, to where we, I, I am, I'm feeling a little bit like that. Uh, when you, when you look at the numbers and you, and you, look at the trends and unless you believe in what's called modern monetary theory where they say deficits don't matter in the United States and debt doesn't matter uh, and I don't buy that theory uh, you have to be concerned because even during the next 10 years if we don't I'm not, well, I'm not sure there's anything we can do at this point but the the interest on the debt will be the single uh, largest item in the budget, except for Social Security, uh, other than, and it'll be bigger than the defense budget, which is now over $700 billion a year. Right now, interest, interest on the debt's about $300 billion. It's going to be more than, it's going to be up to about $850 billion if trends continue. And so what you're doing then, as, as, as a Liberal, and I think probably most conservatives would agree too. You're crowding out the opportunity to do a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. So, so is it fair to say, John? And I don't want to. I mean, you're you're a liberal. There's no question about that. Uh, but is it fair to say that on the issue of deficits? That that um, and I, I even hesitate to even use left and right anymore because it's all been blown to smithereens. But are, 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 is it possible to say that in the era of Trump, that Republicans are more pro deficits than even you are? It, it, you know, uh, Mick Mulvaney a couple of weeks ago said nobody cares about deficits. And that's coming from the guy who relished shutting the government down in 2013 and has been one of the biggest deficit hawks, at least during his congressional career. So, yeah, I think that's possibly true. I mean, that, that to me it says... It is Alice in Wonderland. Yes, exactly. It's Alice in Wonderland. I mean, everything is totally upside down, and it's awfully scary as well. Is Do you think, is it your interpretation, John, that Republicans, to Mulvaney's statement, just suddenly realized that from a, a political standpoint that you get no benefit from being against uh, deficits. Is that is that what happened here? I think that's exactly right. I think what happened was you had Paul Ryan um, t talking <laughs> tough on deficits when he was in the minority, um, and then when he became, when the Republicans got in the majority and he became speaker, they realized that governing isn't as easy as reading Ayn Rand books. And you actually, <laughs> there's a... You know, there are things out there that um, sometimes are beyond your control. Sometimes they are within your control, but they're politically uh, fatal. And they, uh, <laughs> that's right. what happens. Well, what happens when you actually have to govern. 
of course, the irony is in the Ayn Rand books, you know, we spend ourselves into oblivion. And uh, right. uh, and so uh, she might have been exactly right about this. But I, I understand where right. you're coming from, that, that reality yeah. is is uh, is very different than in theory as far as the politics in this. Because let, let's face it, in order to cut, you have to actually tick somebody off. And uh, and nobody gets ticked off about with a bill that they don't actually see. I mean, you know, if we were paying it uh, individually as it happened, I think the whole world would be different. But, you know, in Trump's world, and Trump is really driving this, Trump only cares about what happens to him today. He doesn't care about even himself tomorrow, really. It doesn't seem like. Right. It's today. And so what might happen to the country 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, I, there have been reports that he has said he doesn't care because right. he won't be around. All right. Now, That's absolutely right. And also, he also said throughout his career, you know, that debt was good. Right. That's how he did all of his deals. Well, exactly. Which is heavily in debt. Right. The king of debt. Except oddly, yeah, except debt. oddly enough, when it came to buying golf courses uh, just before <laughs> right. he before he started to run for president, and mysteriously was able to buy Turnberry and and Doral, uh, which I will never understand unless Mueller comes up with the answer. Uh, Robert right. Mueller comes up to the answer. To that okay. Speaking of Robert Mueller, I got to ask you real quick in our remaining moments here. The last time you and I did an interview, uh, I, I I basically begged you uh, to. Uh, shift your position on impeachment uh, after Robert Mueller comes forward. And I, I made some, uh, at least some small progress in pushing you uh, in the direction of at least impeachment, and even knowing that he, it's very, un, it would be almost impossible for him to be removed with a Republican Senate. Where, where are you currently on, on the viability of that issue? And where do you think your caucus is currently? I think my caucus is, um, slowly but steadily moving to your position that is that we would have a responsibility to impeach regardless of whether he was going to be convicted or not because if we don't impeachment is um is irrelevant that it it's in, it doesn't exist if you can't if you don't initiate at least impeachment investigations and hearings right. on this administration well that's exactly my position so thank you for that's at least what i was doing i was repeating your position <laughs> <laughs> but no, but thank you for remembering my position at least because uh, and, and, and and where are you? I mean, are you are you also uh, moving in that direction? Yeah, I've actually said publicly on a number of occasions within the last uh, couple months that I believe we're getting very close to the point at which we absolutely have to initiate proceedings. That's awesome. Well, that makes me feel very good, John. Um, yeah, you finally uh, convinced me of something. Wow, that is, after <laughs> after what is it, fifteen years? Six, mm -hmm, right. I, fi I finally may have done uh, some convincing of you, but that, that's good. It was worth the fifteen years. Um, uh, but because this is important. But but uh, all right. But let me take issue with something else in our last moments here because okay. I'm I'm getting worried. All right, John. <laughs> I, I'm getting really worried. No, I'm serious. I mean, I'm. We are down uh, the rabbit hole. Remember. No, I know. I I'm I'm worried. Uh, I'm worried about Trump not getting impeached for what that means about the future. Oh, by the way, real, real quick, you said something, and I may have misinterpreted it. You said don't give up on Mitch McConnell yet. Uh, now, I realize that was within the budget talks, but is there? you and I have talked a lot about whether Mitch McConnell will eventually stand up for what is right here. Do you have any hope on that? Um, well, I, I, my hope was shaken over the last couple months. Although he did end up coming, uh, getting involved in in the um, in this last shutdown talk, he he made the critical calls 
last Thursday that, that finally got it done. Um, but, you know, there are going to be bigger challenges ahead, and, and we'll see, see how he stands up. Um, I, I think he's a little bit too worried about a potential primary challenge right. in 2020 right now. Right. No, I, I agree with that. I, I've, I've, I personally have given up on Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader who would really have to turn against Trump for him to ever be removed. Uh, but uh, he's from your state in Kentucky, and he's facing re-election next year, and that, I think, puts him in a real bind. And then one other thing, by the way, before we move on to the, to the re-election question real quick, are you sensing, you, you mentioned your caucus, are you are there Republicans behind the scenes in the House who are actually hoping that Trump gets impeached and maybe even removed because they just are so tired of this? Are there, does those, do those people exist? I don't think there are many of them. I think there are a few, but right. they, they never say that publicly because they're much too concerned about possible primary challenges. Virtually every Republican in Congress now comes from a district where Trump is still pretty popular. Right. Okay. We took, we, you know, we, we took out the other ones. Right. Understood. Okay. So, yeah. all right. So let's get to the reelection question. And I'm getting worried because um, I believe that, uh, that Trump's power, his, his, his energy source is uh, political correctness coming from the left and the media, which in the minds of most conservatives is the same thing. And um, and I had been confident that he would not be reelected based upon depending on who your candidate is going to be. But now that we're seeing who the candidates are and how they are positioning themselves and some of the positions that even people who aren't running are taking like this uh, Green New Deal and scaring Amazon out of New York City. And uh, I got to tell you, uh, you guys, in my opinion, so far and we're a long way off are playing right into Trump's hands in every possible way and uh, to the point where even I, John, even I I, I, have thought, oh my gosh, am I going to have to uh, uh, maybe even not uh, support a Democratic candidate or maybe even hope Trump wins because the alternative is even worse? I'm not there, but I'm saying that if you're even potentially losing me, that's a problem because that means means you've lost every Republican possible. Uh, Do you understand my concerns and do people within your uh, party understand those concerns? Yes, I understand those concerns, and the, a lot in the party do. There is a, another school of thought, though, and that is that the way you guarantee that you win elections in closely contested um, campaigns is you bring new people into the equation, and that there are many people who say, for instance, on the, I don't, I'm not advocating for a 70% tax rate or the wealth tax, although I do think we could have a higher. Prog- a higher progressive tax rate uh, on super incomes, but that that actually resonates with with a lot of people who otherwise don't see any hope in voting. That's the same thing with the Green New Deal and uh, climate change. Of course, the Green New Deal is like this is utopia. This isn't really a a, a rational or even a, a material policy proposal. It's just kind of We'd love it if everybody in the country had a living wage and if everybody everybody lived in environmentally efficient housing and so forth. Um, yeah, we'd like to see all that happen. But are we going to get that done in 10 years? No, nah, not really. And, but, but, and nobody's – there's very little okay. – you wouldn't find many votes for that. But, but again, you're, that talks to people 
that's the school of thought that that speaks to people who have been um, they've been um, basically they've become apathetic about politics. I, I, I get I get the theory. Responsive. I get the theory, John, yeah, and yeah. I get I get what you know. That's you know that's a lot of why Trump won because he energized his base. To, to an insane degree, and, and Hillary really did not. I, I get that, John, but uh, you, you know I've said many times, the number one weakness you guys have is you always overplay your hand. I don't know what it is. Uh, maybe it's because you have the media on your side. Maybe it's, you know, you guys are more feelers than thinkers. Well, I don't know what it is, but you always, always, always overplay your hand. And your hand is tremendous, okay, but you're overplaying it. And you're overplaying it dangerously to the point where I think there's a darn good chance Trump's going to get somebody that plays right into his hands and, and he ends up pulling this off and, and winning again. I'm not- That's possible. I mean, what you're seeing, though, out of Nancy Pelosi is, I think, exactly a reflection of that concern because she's putting the damper on Green New Deal. She's I get it. You know, she- yeah. No, she, I understand she, she's. She do- understands. Well, it's in uh, Alice in Wonderland. I, I've actually looked at Nancy Pelosi recently as the voice of reason. I'm like, how is this? Ha- <laughs> how is this happening? Okay, but but um, but uh, look, I'm, you know, I'm sure you and I will talk about this again in the future. And I don't even know what you're. I know you haven't endorsed anybody yet, but um, uh, you know, can we please get Joe Biden a damn nomination? Can we can can we make that happen, John? Uh, I'd be for Joe. I would be for Joe. Well, Joe gets you the, the White House back, okay? Are you, yep. you, can we make that deal? If you, if you guys nominate Joe and, 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 you know, and don't put somebody completely insane on the vice presidential ticket, I'm, I'm right there with you, okay? I mean, can we? All right. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll tell my, uh, my insiders that, that's, that you've given them blessings. <laughs> no, no. Here's what I, don't, here's what I want you to do. Just, just as, as subtly as possible, tell some of the people in your caucus to knock it off. Okay? okay, just just <laughs> knock it off for a couple of years. You can do whatever you want afterwards. All right. I gotcha. <laughs> all right, John. Always. I gotcha. All right, John. You are with the chairman of the uh, House uh, Budget Committee. Always great to talk to you, and I'm sure we'll talk Thanks. again soon. Thanks, John. That's uh, that's my good buddy uh, John Yarmouth. As always, great to talk to John Yarmouth. Uh, a lot of honesty there, and I think really, <laughs> maybe the most important thing that John said there is that, as I predicted. The president got totally crushed when it came to the wall negotiations because he is not a great negotiator. He's the exact opposite of that, and that's why he always claims to be a great negotiator because what Trump claims to be most is what he is not. That's his M.O. That's who he is. But again, thanks so much uh, to Congressman Yarmouth for his uh, time. Uh, And thank you for listening. As always, uh, I ask only a couple things of you, maybe more than normal now, because I'd like you to check out the Individual One podcast, which, again, you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. But also, uh, please share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And uh, also do yourself a favor. If you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. 
performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheik's. S-H-E-E-X. Sheik's. Try Sheik's for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.